When I was in Montgomery, Alabama, I went to a shoe shop quite often, known as the Gordon Shoe Shop. And there was a fella in there that used to shine my shoes, and it was just an experience to witness this fella shining my shoes. He would get that rag, you know, and he could bring music out of it. And I said to myself, this fella has a Ph.D. in shoe shining. <laughs> what I'm saying to you this morning, my friend, even if it falls your lot to be a street sweeper, go on out and sweep streets like Michelangelo painted pictures. Sweep streets like Handel and Beethoven composed music. Sweep streets like Shakespeare wrote poetry. Sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. If you can't be a pine on the top of a hill, be a scrub in the valley, but be the best little scrub on the side of the reel. Be a bush if you can't be a tree. If you can't be a highway, just be a trail. If you can't be the sun, be a star. It isn't by size that you win or you fail. Be the best of whatever you are. I wonder when the last time it was that you freshened up your resume. Anybody have sweaty palms? Just thinking about it. Maybe you're a college grad and you've just finished up your, uh, your degree and you're heading out into the world and you're already making your way to apply to various positions. You've got a resume right there in your active folder on your computer. It could be that you've been at a job that you've been at for years and you've come to a place where, where you're just thinking that maybe it's the right stage and time to, to look at the next step in your career. Could be that you've recently been through a season of unemployment and, and you don't even want to think about resumes because you've sent out scores and scores recently all over the place. Or maybe you've never created a resume at all. Could be that you are, uh, you're a person who has created your own jobs, you've been your own boss and uh, you've made your way through life that way. Or maybe you're a stay-at-home mom or dad and uh, you don't have a resume, but if you did, it would be very interesting what might be on there. You think about it, uh, some big and small accomplishments, you know, like brought life into the world um, and uh, played the role of the tooth fairy 34 times, you know, things like that. Well, career experts tell us that the, uh, the, the best resumes are the ones that tell a compelling story. Uh, ones that uh, choose cogent sentences and carefully uh, worded bullets that uh, together weave a, a story, a narrative that explains and expresses your life and your work story. So depending on the job that you're applying for, however, you know that uh, the resume might highlight, uh, different resumes might highlight different strains of that story, like a like subplots that start to come towards the center, depending on what job it is you're applying for. And so like a, like a song, there's a melody line, and then there's accompanying harmony. And as you change or apply from one position to another, that melody line might just shift slightly. Well, for two weeks, we've been inviting you to thoughtfully consider your work and your life at work. And uh, this morning, we're not going to ask you to take out your resume and to dust them off. Uh, but we are going to ask you to consider an interesting question. The question is this, 
What might your resume look like if it were written from the vantage point of the mission that God is calling you to in life? What would your resume look like with that as the driving storyline, as the driving narrative? So what accomplishments would you highlight? What working relationships would you draw people's attention to? What common themes might show up in a resume like that? Well, this year at Grace Chapel, we've been exploring what it means to live our lives on mission. And so from September until now, we've been learning how to align our lives, our everyday life, with the heart of God and His heart for the world. And now we're not just talking about our lives on Sundays and uh, midweek when we gather for small group or for Bible study. We're talking about our everyday lives. We're talking about our Monday through Friday life. We're talking about our 40 to 60 hour uh, a week life at work. We're even talking about hump day life in the middle of a long Wednesday. Uh, added up to a lifetime, it turns out we spend over 100,000 hours of our lives doing the work that we're, that we're called to do. And if that's true, then it stands to reason that what we do at work... Uh, must, be, must play a part in the mission that God calls us to do in this world. And so during this four-week series on work, we've been discovering some things about work. Mostly we've been discovering that our work matters. And it matters in ways that are more important than maybe we've ever considered before. Last week we learned that our, or two weeks ago, we learned that our work matters when it contributes to human flourishing. Last week, we learned that our work matters when it's done for Christ and his kingdom. And this week, we're going to find that our work matters when it brings people closer to Christ. Our work matters when it brings people closer to Christ. So let's jump right in. We're going to take a look at a passage that uh, is found in uh, the, book of, the second book of Corinthians, second letter to the Corinthian church. Um, and as I read this passage this morning, I'd love for you just to to uh, indulge me for a moment. Um, I'd love you to close your eyes and imagine the place it is that you'll find yourself at the beginning of your work week, uh, Monday morning. Although Monday's a holiday, let's make it Tuesday, okay? So imagine that place where you work. Uh, maybe it's an office, maybe it's a cubicle, maybe it's a classroom. It could be that in your car on your way to clients or in a big meeting. So just close your eyes and picture yourself at work as you hear these words. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 20. Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was, in Christ, reconciling the world to himself no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. And so we are Christ's ambassadors, as though God is making his appeal to the world through us. We are Christ's ambassadors, as though God is making his appeal to the world through us. You can open your eyes. Just a few comments before we explore exactly what these verses 
are calling us to, especially as it uh, pertains to our work life. Throughout the Bible, uh, we, need to set, uh, we need to understand that, that we find that God is the, is the main worker in the story. And uh, we find God at work throughout Scripture. And we find that His work is primarily a twofold work. Uh, first of all, we see that God is engaged in the work of creation. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Genesis 1 and 2. God created everything out of nothing. He, he, once He created, he, he went to work separating and organizing light from darkness, uh, night from day, earth from sea, ground from sky. And so he, he was at work in creation. Then he filled the earth with richness and beauty, animals and vegetation, fish and fowl. Uh, he just proliferated the world with all kinds of beauty and diversity and goodness and richness. God's creative work found there in Genesis 1 and 2. And then, of course, at the end of creation, he creates human beings, man and woman, as the pinnacle of his creation. And it was very good. But what did he do right at that moment? Right at the moment when he created the world and then created us, he commissions men and women. He commissions them to do their work. Just like we've been commissioning people throughout this series after, uh, at the end of the services, commissioning people to go out and do work in their particular sector of work from week to week. He commissioned them. He stood them up before him. Of course, it was just Adam and Eve at that time, and, and you're all wearing more clothes than they were at that moment. But uh, he commissioned Adam and Eve, and, and he invited them into the task of creation with him. Amazing. He, he, he invited them, and he asked him to join with him to make the world flourish. And so we talked about it as, as, the, great, as the first commission. Genesis 1, 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. And then Genesis 2, 15, he said, He took the man and he set him down in the Garden of Eden to work the ground and to keep it in order. God commissioned man and woman to work. And so that invitation still remains with us. That, that first commission still is ours as well. That we, with God, contribute to the flourishing of the world around us. Our neighborhoods, our communities, our, our, our cities, all of society. And so when we contribute what we have to the good of the world around us, we join, join God in this great work of creation and of sustaining creation. I had a lunch with a man this week who is the owner of a crane company in Wilmington, Massachusetts. And we caught up. We hadn't seen each other in a few years. And as he was talking about this insight uh, that he received a few years ago from the scriptures, that work was actually created as good before the fall of humanity and the world, that work was actually good, it, it transformed the way that he thought about his work life. It changed the way he approached his, uh, his working days. Every morning he went to work and he recognized he was joining with God to contribute to the good of the world, the flourishing of society and humanity. And I would imagine that many of you okay, have, have been doing that these last few weeks as, as we've been reflecting on the significance of, of our work as it pertains to this. It's humanity's first commission. But the fact is, something 
happened after creation. Things fell apart. Sin entered into the world. Death and disease and sickness and stagnation and, and fracture in relationship, conflict and turmoil entered in. And into a world into, in which human beings were once in right relationship with each other and in right relationship attuned with God comes this opposing force to God's goodness that has changed everything about the world. Since that time, our contribution to make the world flourish has its limits. Added to our work comes this frustration that it's hard and toil. We know this and we feel the effects of the fall. As good as any of us are at the work that we do, and as much goodness we bring to every morning of the week, we walk into the place where we work. We find ourselves bumping up against the brokenness of the world and of each other all the time. Counselors and therapists, they know this when they sit down with a client and help them make their way through a challenging life uh, experience. They know they can help, but they know they can't sort out what's at the very root of the trouble. Law enforcement, they, they, they crack a big case, but the fact is there's a queue of other cases just waiting in the wings that will never be gone, never be completed. Doctors make amazing progress against disease, but that snarky online newspaper, The Onion, uh, reminds us in an article that they published back in 1997 that the world's death rate is holding steady at 100%. Still it is. There it is. And can I tell you that chart hasn't changed much since 1997. And so as satisfying as the work is that we do and as meaningful as it can be, we know that there's something at the core of the world that, that needs greater fixing than we can offer. And this is where God again steps in and begins his second work. The second work of God is, after the work of creation, is the work of redemption. The work of redeeming the world, of making it right once again. And so in response to the brokenness of the world, God gets to work. And in the person of Christ, what he does is he comes into the world. He comes into the brokenness and literally takes on the brokenness of the world onto himself in the person of Jesus. And at the cross, Christ bears the brunt of all humanity's sickness, shame, hurt, frustration, death, and sin right there. And as we offer ourself to him and our sin to him, he gives back to us the kind of life that only Jesus can make available. It's the work of redemption. It's this gift that he shares with the world for anyone who's willing to, to receive it and to take it. And so what did he do in the midst of this work? In the midst of the work of redemption? The same thing he does in the work of creation. He calls people. He commissions people into this work of redemption with him. And so there they were, standing before Jesus, before Jesus went back to the Father after, his, after he rose from the dead. And Jesus stands there with his disciples and he commissions them into the work of redemption. He says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything which I've commanded to you. We call this 
the Great Commission. The Great Commission. It's found in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20. And in case you thought that the Great Commission was only for his followers, for those 12 that followed him around, Paul reiterates this to the entire church in the passage we read at the beginning. We are Christ's ambassadors as though God is making his appeal to the world through us. The appeal that God is making to the world through us is that appeal of a redemptive work that's been offered and extended to everyone. And so we are Christ's ambassadors. It's always remarkable to me that that God invites us into the process of doing his work with him. Um, Often I I wonder, isn't isn't there work that only God really is qualified for? Uh, Is it right for him to ask me to join with him in what he's doing? Let's leave it to the experts. I often compare God's attitude towards my own with some of the work that I have to do, say at home. Um, I like the kitchen cleaned, and I like it cleaned a certain way. And I find myself often saying, you know what, guys, just leave the kitchen and let me at it so I can make sure it's done the way I like to. My kids actually love that, I found out. (laughs) Um, But God doesn't work that way. In all the work he does, he says, come on into the kitchen with me. Join with me in my work. I I not only want you to come, but I need you. I need you to be there with me. And so... If the world is to know about Christ's redeeming work, then God invites us, asks us to be witnesses of his in this world, to be ambassadors of his for the message that he offers. So the question is, in those hundred thousand hours of yours that is your life at work, what does that look like? What does it look like for you in your office or your workplace to be God's ambassador as if God were making his appeal to the world through you? Well, I would offer four ways this happens. And as we go, I'm going to tell a few stories. Um, But I would suggest, first of all, that God makes his appeal through us when we do our best work. When we do our best work. You know, we don't have to dwell long here. Brian mentioned it last week, the quality of our work. And Martin Luther King Jr. spoke to it well. The quality of our work speaks volumes to the people around us. If you're a street sweeper, then sweep streets like Michelangelo paints a painting. Sweep streets like like Handel and Beethoven compose a symphony. Sweep streets like, like Shakespeare wrote poetry. Sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great sweet streeper who swept his street well. You try saying that. And I can barely do it justice myself. But what a, rich, what a rich message that is. That in doing our work with excellence and with intensity and with effort and with all of, our, uh, all of what we have to offer, we, 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 we dignify the work that we do. Do your work as if you were doing it for God as if it were simply an act of worship to the one who created you and has given you good things to do. I wonder, at your work, do people know that that when they give you a responsibility, that it's as good as done? They know it's secure with you and it's taken care of. At work, I wonder, do people love having you do what you do alongside of them every day? 
Are they glad to be a part of your team? Do they enjoy the contribution that you make? You see, doing our work well, it's the starting point to our ability to be a witness in the world. God makes his appeal through us when we do our best work. Secondly, God makes his appeal through us when we are attentive to people in the midst of our work. When we're attentive to people. You see, people matter to God. I think back on the way that Jesus lived his life and the value that he demonstrated to those people that he came into contact with every day. In the midst of a hectic and full schedule, in the midst of a lot of activities and teaching and healing and so forth, Jesus took time to turn his attention towards individuals. We read the stories all the way through the scriptures. And <clears throat> I wonder what it would be like if Jesus followed us around at work and sort of critiqued us in, in that way. How much do we spend our time thinking about people as a function that they do that fits in with other functions around us? How many do we see them, how often do we see them as people who do the job that they do rather than as people who are human beings with, with lives and stories? I wonder if you know the names of the coworkers you work with. Most of you say, of course. How about the names of their family members? How about the stories of where they're at right now with their family or in their life? Do you know their hopes? Do you know their heartaches? Do you know the things that keep them up at night? Do you know the things that are challenging for them? Do you take time throughout your working day to be attentive to the needs of the people around you? I sent out an email to a few folks this past week asking them to tell me how, how it is that God used them in their work to make his appeal to the world. And uh, one reply came from a doctor, a very busy doctor at Mass General Hospital. Here's what he said. He said, one of the humbling aspects of being a physician is that patients often entrust to me in the course of a 15-minute encounter deep secrets and private concerns they haven't shared with even their closest confidants. Typically, these intimate details are conveyed to me during the course of describing some physical ailment, but more often than I can count, they come with real problems of the spirit, loneliness, despair, broken relationship, and so on. On the surface, they asked me to treat their physical discomfort by prescribing the right, right painkiller. But in an unspoken way, they really wish I could take away their inward pain. He said, when I was younger in my career, I missed the cues. I simply made diagnoses, prescribed medications, gave my patients a reassuring handshake as they left the exam room. That's what they teach you in medical school. But eventually I realized that's not why God gave me the privilege of being a doctor. I've since learned to take the cues and be as vulnerable to my patients as they are to me. Bob, I might say, since your retirement, you've come to me several times with fatigue and headaches. Tell me about how being out of the game affects your energy. And importantly, how does it make you feel about yourself? And suddenly, Bob and I are having a conversation about his self-worth, about his relationship at home. The conversation turns to a sense of restlessness and fear of being forgotten and irre irrelevant. And I ask him if he's ever thought about getting involved in his local church or other men's group. And on subsequent visits and 15-minute snippets, we continue talking about his faith and growth. 
I found more often than not my patients are open to exploring the spiritual dimension of their lives as easily and easily make connections between their physical and mental health and the status of their soul. Of course that's true because human beings are human beings. And when we take time to be attentive to the human beings that God brings into our lives, we find ourselves with rich opportunity. People are longing to be treated like their people, individuals that matter. And when we are attentive to them, we show people the Jesus-like regard that we can have for him that brings people closer to Christ. So God makes his appeal through us when we do our best, when we're attentive to people, and thirdly, when we make unexpected choices. Again, Jesus' life never exactly seemed to fit the mold of society or convention. Uh, he never fit the mold of the world he came into. It could be said that he lived a life that ran counter uh, to the world in some aspects. He often made decisions that left people scratching their heads. You did what? Why? It was never because he wanted to make a name for himself or, or puff up his ego. And it wasn't that he was just a mere contrarian wanting to set himself apart from everybody around him. It was simply because the values of the kingdom of heaven so often conflict with the values of the kingdom in this world. And he so embodied those values. And so all the time he would bump up against the values of a world and humanity that were skewed by the fall. And often the choices he made, like I said, left people scratching their heads, wondering exactly what he was getting at. But for those who came to understand his purpose and the reason behind his actions, those selfless decisions were the thing that made his life so beautiful and make Jesus so attractive. And again, think about yourself in your own workplace. Your work should demonstrate the qualities of Jesus, even in this way. Tim Keller is a pastor of uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. And he tells a story about a young woman at his church. He knew that she hadn't been there for a long time. Uh, she would, would come in late and sit in the back, and he saw her scoot out early. And one day he caught her, sort of intercepted her as she was making her way out. Just wanted to find out her name and, and find out what was happening in her life. Uh, she told him that she was exploring Christianity. She said she didn't believe it yet, uh, but she found a lot of it very interesting. And she found the teaching interesting. So Tim asked her how she found the church in the first place. And the woman told, her his, uh, told him her story. She said, I worked for a company in Manhattan, and not long after starting, I made a big mistake. One that could have cost me my job. She said, I told my boss about the mistake that I made. And what he did was he went to his boss, and uh, he actually took the responsibility completely for what it was that, that I'd done. And as a result, he actually took a ding in his reputation, this man. He, he lost some ability to maneuver within the organization. And she said, I was so amazed at what he'd done that I went in and thanked him. And she told him that she'd often seen supervisors take credit for her work, but she'd never seen a supervisor take the blame for her work before. She wanted to know why he did it. So he was modest and deflected the questions, but she was insistent. And finally, he said to her, well, I'm, I'm a follower of Christ. And that means that, among other things, that God accepts me 
Because Jesus Christ took the blame for the things that I've done wrong. And he did that on the cross. That's why I have the desire and sometimes the ability to take blame for others. And so she stared at him for a long moment and said, what church do you go to? You can imagine. And he suggested that she come with him to redeem her, and so she did. It's a great story because it reminds us how natural it is for us to get caught up into the me first a world, workaday world that we live in. How easy it is that, because it's the air we breathe, right? It's the natural way of things to put yourself, your career, your ambition first. Sure, you live and work with a bunch of other people, but you've got to think about number one, right? Your success above others. You need to be careful and calculating and sometimes ruthless along the way. Well, the story reminds us that the way of Jesus is different, that it's actually a distinctive kind of life, and one that leads us into unexpected choices that we might make. And those unexpected choices are, are opportunities that often bring us to put other, pe other people's interests before our own and lead us into some amazing conversations because we're demonstrating the values of the kingdom and the life of Jesus where we work. It's God making his appeal through us. And he does it when we make unexpected choices. And then finally, God makes his appeal through us when we find our voice. When we find our voice. Of course, there's going to come a time when it's the right moment to speak, to put into words the, the faith that we have in Christ, to, to express and explain the joy and satisfaction and fullness that comes as a result of our, our finding forgiveness and freedom and new, newness of life. Um, but it usually begins when people start getting to know who you are. As a matter of fact, all the things we've talked about to this point often come before you earn a right to say anything. But at some point, they find out what it is that you're really all about. They, they care about you enough that they want to find out more. And, and then they, they find out what you really do on Sunday mornings. Maybe, maybe you share pictures about a trip that you took on a vacation with a mission team from your church. Or you talk to them about friends that are encouraging you as you're making your way through a hard time. Maybe it gets deeper. Maybe someone has come to know you well enough and, and hold you in high enough regard that they begin to ask you questions about what you believe and why. Ask you for advice and input into their own lives. These are holy and privileged opportunities that God leads us into. And I would say they're opportunities that we should be ready for and ones that we need to be seeking, uh, be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit in. Um, now, breaking the ice can sometimes be the hardest part, uh, saying the first word about our faith. And in some environments, it actually requires a lot of courage. I received another email this week. This man said that since graduate school, I've been working in some aspect of healthcare technology. Currently, I'm in medical software. A few months ago, I attended a medical conference, and when I arrived, I bumped into the conference chair, the head of a major institute at a major university in the United States. After the conversation, he invited me to join him and have some of his colleagues at their table uh, to join him and some of his colleagues 
at their table during the opening reception. The talk soon turned to some big scientific challenge. No one has the answer to that, my host uh, Jim said. Not even those crazy people who think that there's a God. Well, when the laughter died down, he said, I looked at him, took a deep breath and said, well, I'm actually one of those crazy people. Long story short, we had some discussion. I made sure I kept smiling and for for Christmas, I sent him a book that I promised I would. It was Dr. Francis Collins' The Language of God. Collins is the current head of the National Institute of Health, and he was the one exception that stumped Jim. He was a scientist physician that he just had to recognize as legitimate, and yet he also believed in God. He said, Jim hasn't come to Christ yet, to the best of my knowledge, but I have to believe that it was no accident he invited me to join him. Sometimes finding our voice takes a lot of courage, but not usually. Usually it's not in a broad statement in a moment like that. That does happen, and we need to be ready for moments like that. But I wonder if you've had a moment where you found your voice. Most often it's, it's a small voice that's most effective, right? It turns out most people can't handle a lot of voice from us, and we can quickly overwhelm them with lots of words and lots of ideas. But simple, authentic, well-placed comments can be used by God in remarkable ways. They often become touch points that get circled back to from a coworker, colleague, or classmate. So how about you? How is God making his appeal through you in your workplace. Is he? Are you allowing him to? Maybe it's through your diligence at work. Maybe it's through your attentiveness to people. Maybe it's through the counterintuitive choices that you make that stand out in a world that often looks all the same. Maybe it's through the conversation that you have. Well, I wonder maybe if God is inviting you this morning to lean into one of those areas, one of these aspects of your witness, and, and, and to recommit yourself, recommission yourself to join him in his redemptive work in the world. Well, I want to close out the message by sharing with you one more story. It's actually a story from uh, one of our folks here at Grace Chapel, a person who was on the receiving end of God's appeal to her through the people at her work and the goodness that comes into a life as a result of, of authentic witness of others. And so would you welcome with me uh, Lori Izzo. Come on up, Lori, and uh, Lori will share her story with us. Good morning, everybody. I'm privileged to share my story with you. Um, my husband and I are both psychiatric nurses. Uh, we married later in life and had our children in our 40s. I like to call us late bloomers. Um, we, I work days as an, uh, in management, and my husband um, works the night shift, and we did this so that we could provide um, coverage for our kids. We were a very fragile but well-oiled tag team. Um, we worked hard and filled our home with stuff. And so we made the decision that a lot of people didn't at that time, we bought a bigger home. 
um, that's when our lives really started to come apart. Within six months, the housing market collapsed and we lost all our equity in the home. Our young son, who struggled with developmental and learning disabilities, also hit a wall at that time and became profoundly depressed. Those were very dim days and it seemed like my old friend, depression, was settling in for a very long stay. To be closer to home and more available for my son's medical and school appointments, I changed jobs. I wasn't there long when I realized there was something different about this unit. The people were different. The care the patients were getting was different. And I couldn't put my finger on it. I didn't know what it was exactly. There was a kindness on that unit that in 30 years of practice, I hadn't observed before. The staff seemed a little more scented, and I began to observe things that seemed kind of strange to me. One day at the end of change of shift report, the oncoming and offgoing nurse were passing the board, and they paused, and they seemed to be praying. What? <laughs> it was quiet, it was really unnoticeable, but really, they were praying. Later on, I learned that these two nurses prayed for the safety and healing of their patients before and after their shifts. Within a few months at this job, we had a big licensing inspection. The surveyor came and did his job, and at the end, he asked to meet with a patient on our service. The one he chose had been hospitalized there for a long time and had a very difficult stay. And I was a little nervous about what she might tell this inspector. And what she said stayed with me and will stay with me for my entire life. This patient said that when she was at her most distressed, a nurse asked her if it would be okay if she prayed with her. The patient cited that act as the turning point in her recovery. And um, we got the best survey we've ever had. He was he liked that answer. I began to think and realized, I think God is on this unit. Didn't he know that God wasn't allowed on psychiatric units? I kept my suspicion to myself, but I left the door slightly open, just in case. Oh God, I remembered him. I had grown up learning to be afraid of God, but the people here seemed comforted and strengthened by him. Months later, I was leaving work on a Friday after a challenging week. I was my usual frazzled self, and I couldn't find my keys to get out of the locked unit. One of the counselors, Janet, offered to unlock the door for me, and as she did, she said, have a good weekend, Lori. And if you're interested, there's a service at Grace Chapel in Lexington on Sunday that you might appreciate. No pressure. Nothing too obvious, but the seed was planted. Well, that Sunday, I packed up my children, and we sat in the last row um, of the balcony. We'd never been into a place like this before. It was the Sunday that Pastor Brian was preaching about affluenza. I knew then that Jesus brought me to this place on that day to hear these words. It didn't come as a bolt of lightning, but Sunday after Sunday, 
alpha class after alpha class, I came to know that the emptiness I always felt could not be filled with stuff or by outrunning myself at a frenetic pace. It could only be filled with God. God was the missing anchor of my life, and no matter what actions I did, no matter what I tried, without him in my life, I would be off-center and always slightly out of sync. These people from my job brought me here to this place, and God saved my life. He pulled the shade up for me and turned the lights on. My life is better now. My son is at a school where he is thriving, and he's now thinking about going to college. My daughter will begin college in September, and I believe that she set off on a track that was set through her time at gravity. Our family is strong and stable. Leonard Cohen, in his poem Susanna, wrote, that only drowning men can see him. In healthcare, we're surrounded by individuals who feel like they're drowning as they face medical and psychological crises. But what I have learned from my experience with a fabulous group of colleagues is that people who are drowning are not all in johnnies or in beds. They may be the ones in suits, they may be in the C-suite, they may be across the hall. The invitation that you extend may be soft, quiet, and slow, but it may be the life preserver for a drowning colleague. I know that it was for me. Thank you. Thanks, you know, it often doesn't take much. Just a word, an action, a prayer, being caught praying. It doesn't take much, but we have the opportunity to be ambassadors for God in the world, to be the means by which God makes his appeal through him and through us. Let's consider that as we head out into our work week this week. Well, for the last few weeks at the end of the service, we've been commissioning people to live out uh, their God-given mission at work. And so as we end this service, we are also going to have a time of commissioning. Uh, the first week we prayed for folks in uh, the home and education and home building fields. Last week we prayed for those in the fields of uh, commerce and culture making. And this week we'll be praying for those who serve in the sector of healthcare and human services. So we'll put that on the board. We're going to release our uh, other campuses to their own congregations to, to pray for them and commission them. But here in Lexington and uh, in the courtyard, if, if you are in uh, these fields serving uh, throughout the week, if you'll just stand for us, we'd like to uh, pray for and commission you. Go right ahead, stand right up. Uh, I've invited Celeste William Wilson, who is a member of Grace Chapel and also the medical director of Boston Children's Hospital's uh, Children Protection Program, to come and uh, commission us this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the strength, 
patience and compassion you grant us every day as we work to serve our fellow brothers and sisters. Thank you for the years of education supplying us with the knowledge to provide health care and human services to those in need so that we may ease their suffering, calm their worries, and lighten their burdens, if even for a brief moment in time. Lord, although you've blessed us with these gifts, let us be ever mindful that you are the King Diagnostician, Chief Counselor, and Master Healer. As we stand here with you today, Lord, we ask that you continue to use us as your vessel for helping our patients, clients, and their network of loved ones. Help to expand our wisdom and guide our tongues as we counsel those with troubled lives and wounded souls. Enable us to remain steadfast and diligent as we strive to protect the innocent and vulnerable, helping us to not only complete our duties, but exceed all expectations. We come to you today asking that you renew our commitment to this important work of human services and health care so that we may better care for the sick and afflicted. Lord, we ask that you soften our hearts, steady our hands, and enable us to appreciate the God-given power we have to positively influence lives as we carry out our day's work. We come to you, Lord, humble in spirit, asking that you restore our bodies and ease our minds as we look forward to yet another day of doing the noble work of caring for others. And now, placing our faith in you and your eternal power of grace, we ask that you grant us peace as we go forth to serve and comfort those in need. Amen.